We're going to see today a pretty significant transition in the Gospel of Matthew. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's five transitions, uh, five points where Matthew records Jesus making kind of a move. And because our desire is to get a a big picture of Matthew, that's why we're taking large sections of the Scripture at a time, uh, because we're we're desiring to get the big picture of Matthew, we need to pay attention to these different different movements. And uh, the first of these came back in Matthew chapter 7 at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew records Jesus, uh, or Matthew says that when Jesus had finished saying these things, that is the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. When Jesus had finished saying, finished saying, right? So this thing had happened. Jesus had been teaching, doing these things. When he had finished it, okay, that's Matthew's way of saying, okay, we're making a transition now to this next thing. Now we're going to see the same thing in our passage today. The next one of these, the third transition in Matthew comes at the end of chapter 13. Um, I say that because um, I, I want us to understand how Matthew is framing this section of Scripture today. Uh, we can be reading Matthew as if it's just sort of, here's the beginning, here's the end, we read it straight through. But Matthew, I think, wants us to see that he is um, uh, he, he, he's doing something here, and he wants us to notice, he wants us to pay attention to this transition. He wants us to pay attention to what's coming after this move, after this transition. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> like crickets. Uh, we're, we're, we're calling this series, as you know, Complete Transformation. Uh, we're calling this Complete Transformation because um, our thesis, uh, our conviction is that uh, people who truly encounter Jesus become transformed by Jesus. Um, there are people who, who meet Jesus, who know about Jesus, and uh, who are not transformed by Jesus. But what we find in the, in the Gospel of Matthew is that, that being near Jesus, listening to Jesus, being in the presence of Jesus, somehow changes you. And we're going to see that happening um, today. We're going to see how people are transformed or not by Jesus. So Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to be Uh, looking this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dig into this together. God, thanks for this uh, time uh, to be together. Thanks for this time to open your scripture. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, every week it's our hope that we don't learn new information, but that we come to know you a little bit better. And so I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would do that kind of work today, because it's something that only you can do. We can't. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm going to read this entire chapter here, and and I want to start a new tradition at our church. And some of you will be familiar with this. Um, Oftentimes in a church, when somebody reads a large portion of Scripture, that person at the end of it says, this is the Word of God. Anybody familiar with that? This is the Word of God. And then what what does the congregation reply with? Thanks Thanks be to God. Now, here's been my experience with this tradition. The, the pastor or the reader reads the scripture, they say, Thank, uh, this is the word of God, and then the congregation goes, thanks be to God. <laughs> and it's weird because it's clearly not actually thankful. <laughs> uh, so our tradition is going to be that when I say, or whoever's preaching says, this is the word of God, the congregation is going to say, thanks be to God, but you're only going to say it if you're actually thankful for the word of God. Amen. So that means that if you say thanks be to God, you actually have to mean it and say it with some enthusiasm. Let's practice. This is the word of God. 
Okay, that's close. That, that's actually not bad. But can I, let me let one more time and then we're actually... This is the Word of God. All right. Okay, good. All right. So let me read this. And uh, if you have your Bible, uh, open it up. And um, I've got a couple of Bibles here um, to give to Jawan and Kenyatta. I meant to give these to you all earlier, but just open these suckers up and you can share with your cousin here. Okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 11. Here we go. It's a bit long, but hang with me here. Uh, the first person we encounter is the, what did John call him this morning? Crazy person? theological term. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Did you catch the major transition? After Jesus had finished instructing. Okay, that's this move that Matthew's making. This is the literary move that he's making. He's saying these things happened, Jesus finished doing this thing, and now. Okay, gotta watch for that. He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Now, now Jesus is being uh, a little uh, sarcastic, a little rhetorical here. He says, did you go out to see a reed blown in the wind? This was um, like a phrase that people would have been common with uh, or familiar with, where it's like somebody who just goes with the flow. Like, so if Jesus was writing us today, he'd say, did you go out to the desert to see someone who just goes with the flow? A reed that just blows with the wind? And, and of course, they know, no, that's not the kind of person John was. Did you go to see a man dressed in fine clothes? Again, a little sarcasm. John dressed not in fine clothes, as, kind of, as John said, kind of a crazy person. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now here's a move that Jesus makes right here. This is kind of a pivotal move. He just said, he just kind of lifted John up as a powerful example, the greatest prophet, and yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is a transition here. Jesus is looking back and he's saying, of all the line of the Jewish prophets, nobody's greater than John. Nobody's greater than John, okay? That's in the past, past tense, looking back over my shoulder. But now Jesus says, because the kingdom of heaven has come. New reality, new reality. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all of the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. And there was a a very strong Jewish tradition in the first century here, this is at the time of Jesus, that Elijah was going to come back. Elijah had been taken up into the heavens, we read in the Old Testament, and there was a strong strong Jewish tradition that Elijah was going to be the one who came back as a foretaste of the rescuer, of the Messiah who was to come. Okay? 
So, so you see what Jesus is doing here. He's, who's, who, who's he saying John is? Elijah, right? Making a, a pretty big statement here. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And for you, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of God. Okay, not bad, not bad, not bad. Um, what I want to do this morning is, is not go verse by verse through this entire section. Instead, what I want to do is look at the three main characters in this. And I would say those three main characters are John the Baptist, the unrepentant cities, and Jesus' disciples, who he refers to as these little ones. And I want to notice how these three different people, groups of people, respond to Jesus. Now, we did this at the beginning of our study of Matthew, and some of you were here for that. When Jesus was born, at the, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Matthew, we get to see how his adoptive father, Joseph, how uh, Herod the Great, and how the Magi, the, the, what we would call the wise men, how all three of them responded to the news that a new king had come. Does anybody remember that? A new king had come, and we saw, we witnessed three different, three radically different responses to this news. We're going to do a similar thing today, but people now are responding to something different. At the beginning of Matthew, people were responding to news that a new king had come. They were used to Herod the Great, this very oppressive, all-powerful uh, 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 king known around the world. And so people were responding to the news that a new king had come. Well, today, what people are responding to is what I would call um, Jesus' emerging um, uh, uh, lordship. People are responding to the fact that, that, that this Jesus, this rabbi, is different, is not what we expected, and maybe is even the Messiah, the anointed one, the one we've hoped for, prayed for, the one we've been looking forward to. So today we get to observe three different reactions, not simply to a new king, but to the idea that this teacher might actually be the promised Messiah. Does that make sense to you? 
Come on, y'all. Help me out today. Does that make sense to you? Okay, thank you. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these three different uh, responses to Jesus. Um, Let's just jump right in. The first one, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. His response to Jesus is a questioning response. John the Baptist questions who Jesus is. Now, um, how how were John and, and, and Jesus related? Do you remember? Say it louder cousins. They were cousins. Uh, so they knew each other. Their families knew each other. Um, and, and, and John's response to Jesus, I would say, is one of questioning, one of doubt. We learn earlier in Matthew that Herod had put John the Baptist in prison. Um, John had been speaking out against the king because the king had taken his brother's wife as his own wife. Um, and that's not okay now, and it wasn't okay then either. And John the Baptist calls him out publicly, which is dangerous to call basically a dictator out publicly, right? It's true now. It was true then. And, and so John the Baptist is now in prison. We're going to learn more of John's story as we go along in Matthew. But, but picture John. He's used to being out in the desert, out in the wilderness. He, he's, a, he's a lone ranger. God told me to say something. I'm going to say something no matter what. Now where is John? He's in his prison cell. He's, he's used to being on the front lines of what God is doing, and now he's in a prison cell. And so all he knows about Jesus is what he's hearing people say about Jesus. It's likely that John, like many other people, had pretty specific ideas of what the Messiah was going to do, what the anointed one was going to do. Okay? A couple of those expectations. One was that the temple... The place of worship, the Jewish place of worship, would be cleansed, would be purified. Okay? Herod had built the temple. Herod was corrupt. Herod was not a, a, a good religiously practicing Jew. And so, and, so, and, and so the Jewish people viewed the temple as in need of purification. Okay? It, was not, it was not right. It was not how it should be. So when the Messiah came, the expectation is that the temple would be purified so that right worship could happen again. Are you with me? Second expectation, major expectation, was that the anointed one, the Messiah, would be a political liberator. Who's in charge right now? Who's in charge? The Romans. The Romans are in charge. Israel is an occupied land. The king is a puppet. There is no real authority that the king has over his people unless the Romans say it's okay. So the expectation was that the Messiah would come, would would, would purify the temple, restoring right worship once again, and drive out the foreign occupying force. Does that make sense? Had either of these happened with Jesus? No. The temple was just as it had been. The Romans were still in control. And so from John's perspective, in prison from what he hears about what Jesus is doing, you can maybe understand why he's having some of these questions. So he sends his disciples. Ask him. Ask him. Is he the one we've been waiting for? Or should we expect somebody else? John, I would say, is questioning. He's doubting. He's maybe skeptical about Jesus at this point. Because the temple hasn't been purified, the Romans are still in control, and I'm in jail. This isn't how it's supposed to go. 
This isn't the plan, right? So this is a problem for John. John questions. John wonders. John doubts. Jesus' response to John, I think, is very telling and important for us. Jesus shows compassion to John. Uh, this, this catches me a little by surprise because if anybody should have known better, it was John. They're kin. They're related. They're cousins. God has spoken to John. This is your ministry to prepare the way. He was there when Jesus was baptized, when the Holy Spirit had come down. If anybody should have known better, right, it was John. And so it wouldn't have surprised me at all if Jesus would have been kind of curt with his disciples. And John should know better. You go back and tell him that I said he should know better. But what does he do? I think, John, I think Jesus shows incredible compassion to John. Rather than blast his questions, his doubts, his skepticisms, he simply points out the restoration that is happening. He doesn't attack him. He doesn't embarrass him. He simply points out the acts of restoration that are happening all around Jesus. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus does not take the time to address each of John's questions, his doubts, even though they're unspoken to us. I think Jesus probably would have understood where John was coming from. The temple hasn't been cleansed, the Romans haven't been defeated, John's still in prison. But what he does is point to evidence of God's activity, God's work all around him. The old temple hasn't been cleansed, but a new temple has come, and it's a temple that will make way for all people to worship God. The Romans are still in control, but John, a new kingdom has come. And it's a kingdom that will defeat not just the Romans, but death itself, right? The Messiah isn't what you expected, cousin. But, 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 the gospel of the kingdom is being proclaimed to the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the overlooked, and the dispossessed. Can you see it, John? Can you see it, cousin? Go back and tell John what you see. Go back and tell John what's happening. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me, Jesus says. Hang in there, John. That's what he's saying. Hang in there, John. I know you're in prison. I know you have questions. I know it doesn't look like you thought it was going to look. Hang in there, John. Don't allow your expectations of what God should be doing to keep you from seeing the incredible things that God is already doing. You hear that? John, John, don't, don't let the things that you thought God was supposed to be doing keep you from seeing what God is already doing. Some of you need to hear that because to you it feels like God's not doing anything in your life right now. You know why? Because you've been telling God what he should be doing in your life right now. Right? And so if that doesn't happen, then I guess God's not at work. This is why some of you need to be in, in community more. You need people in your lives who can... <laughs> You're missing it! Look at what God is doing! A am I right? Look at where God is already at work. So this is what Jesus does. He shows compassion, but he says, John, 
John, John, don't let what you thought was supposed to happen keep you from seeing what's actually happening right now. It's a compassionate response. Now hear this, hear this. It has huge implications for us as a new church. Jesus is okay with your questions. Jesus is okay with your doubts. Jesus is okay with your skepticism. Is that good news? In fact, Jesus will show compassion to us in those moments of doubt, skepticism, questioning. This is why I love the Psalms, a book of poetry in the Old Testament. It's like every other psalm, whoever, you know, whatever psalmist, poet, singer is, is writing them is like in the midst of some huge crisis of faith. Where are you, God? How come my enemies are, 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 are winning? I can't hear you. Oh, this, I love that. Because God is big enough to take that. Amen. That's great news. So Jesus doesn't simply tolerate you in your questions. He has compassion for you in your questions your doubts. Uh, on, on Thursday, I went, uh, I went to, to get a haircut, and I go to, um, that's one of those things, uh, should I admit this? I go to a Puerto Rican uh, uh, salon to get my haircut. <laughs> I do. It's in Humboldt Park, and uh, I go up there because, I, you know, I grew up in South America, and so every once in a while, I just need a taste of, like, Latin, you know what I mean? Culture. I need to hear Spanish. I need someone to offer me like a cafe con leche when I come in and get a little on both cheeks, you know. So don't, you know, do with that information what you will. Uh, but I, so I go, I go to Magdalia's to get my hair cut. And, um, and, and, and so on Thursday I go in there. And it's not like a 30-minute experience. It's about a two-hour deal, you know. Because you talk, you sit, you have coffee, you talk, you know. And, and at least for many of us men, we're not, that's not how we do things. Um, but I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting. I'm drinking my coffee. And, and the owner, she pulls up a chair next to me. And she said, Pastor. I know, oh, this will be interesting. Because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not normally pastor to her. She said, Pastor, I need, I, I need to talk. Okay. Uh, and she basically goes on to say that because of the economy, their business is really not doing well. Um, that she's had to let some folks go. Really difficult for her, people she cares about. Um, and, and, and the essence of her question, if I could boil it down, is, Pastor, help me see where God is in this. Now, this is a, a, a Christian person. She's a, a person of faith. And her, and her husband's there, and so we're talking. She said, Pablo, come sit down. So Pablo comes, and the three of us are sitting there. Where is God in this right now? Is our business going to make it? Am I going to have to lay off more folks? What does our future look like? We depend on this. Is God big enough? Is God good enough? What are the plans that God has for us? Of course, I don't have answers to these questions, right? No one does. But we talked, we talked, we talked. I shared a couple of verses from Scripture, and then we, we prayed together. Like, we're having church in the Caribbean beauty salon, something. And I love that moment because I think what, 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 what this woman and her husband demonstrate is a profound belief that God is compassionate in the midst of their struggle. 
that there's even room for them to say, where is God in this right now? We've put all of our savings into this, all of our lives into this business. Where is God right now? Can anybody relate to that? So I love the faith that this woman and her husband have to say, we don't know where our story is going. We, know, we don't know what's going to happen to our business. And I can't even tell you what God is doing right now. It doesn't even seem like God is present in this. And God is big enough and compassionate enough to hear that, to receive that. Our church, our church must always, always, always be a place where people can walk in no matter where they are in their doubts, their questions, their skepticism, their cynicism, and be fully welcomed. Amen? The minute that we cease being that kind of church, we're no longer representing our compassionate God. You know what one of the greatest signs of health for our church will be? Is if people who don't call themselves Christians show up regularly. Say, I don't even believe all the stuff that y'all believe, but this is a safe place for me to be. There are people who I'm in relationship, who I care about. I have questions, I have wonders, I have concerns, and I don't have to believe all the stuff that y'all believe, but I can be present here. This is a sick. Would you agree that that's a sign of health for us, church? I want you to know that since the very beginning, by the way, we're at our six-month anniversary right now of our church. Yeah, at the very... From the very first day, from the very first day, there have been people who have made this their home who would say, I'm not sure I believe all this stuff, but it's a safe place for me to be. That's a sign of health because it demonstrates the heart of who God is, a God of compassion, wherever we are, wherever, whatever we're going through. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's look at the next example here. So we've seen John. John has these questions, these doubts, the skepticism. Jesus responds to John, compassion. Now we get to the unrepentant cities, and we're going to skip a few verses here. Uh, But Jesus now has some very strong things to say to these unrepentant cities. This passage begins in verse 20, if you're curious. Jesus turns his attention from John to who John is, to, 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 to what John has said about Jesus. He turns his attention now to these unrepentant cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, here's the thing that you need to know. Jesus has spent most of his ministry so far in the region of Galilee. It's a region uh, around the Lake of Galilee. All three of these cities are in the region of Galilee. So Jesus isn't just plucking some random names and saying, woe to you, cities. No. Jesus is picking three cities that know him. Jesus is picking three cities where he has spent significant time. In uh, chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 12 and 17, we read this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, that's his cousin, okay, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, the region of Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. Jesus lived in Capernaum. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. A handful of Jesus' disciples had come from the, from the city of Bethsaida. Jesus himself had lived in Capernaum. So when Jesus lists these three cities, not three random cities, these are three cities who knew Jesus, who were known by Jesus. These were three cities that were made up of people who had seen Jesus do miracles, had seen people be healed, had seen the oppressed liberated, 
had heard the proclamation of the good news of the, of the kingdom of heaven. You understand what I'm saying? Not three random cities. Jesus is speaking to specific people. He's speaking to friends, neighbors, and maybe family when he says this. It's important for us to, to see this for what, what comes next here. Jesus singles out these areas where he had spent a lot of time. So how is their response to Jesus different from John's? John is questioning. He's doubting. Maybe he doesn't even believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But, but what is it about John? He's still seeking after Jesus. He's still open to Jesus. He, he has sent his disciples from prison to go find Jesus. So despite all of his questions, all of his doubts, all of his confusion, he is still open to Jesus. As opposed to these cities. These cities, Matthew tells us, had closed themselves off to Jesus. They had, uh, in a term, rejected Jesus. So these folks, they had experienced Jesus' power, sick people healed, ethnic divisions crossed, raging storms calmed, spiritually oppressed people liberated, dead people raised to life. Experienced all of this. And still not turned to Jesus. Uh, what does Matthew say? At the very beginning of, of, of Jesus' ministry, Matthew says that from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. When we think of the word repent, um, uh, we can think of different images. Um, many of us have bumped into people, maybe downtown carrying signs that say repent. Anybody? People drive me crazy, but that's another deal. Um, what is Jesus saying? Turn away from your old broken way of living. Turn away from your self-centered way of living. Turn away from your corrupted, your empty, your hopeless way of living. Turn away from that and turn to life. Jesus said, because I have come, the kingdom of heaven has come near. So turn away from that and turn towards this new kingdom that is coming. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. And, and, and Matthew tells us that Jesus addresses these cities because they would not repent. Uh, here, here's the fascinating thing. I, I bet these folks, they like Jesus. This guy heals people. That's convenient. You have somebody next door who can heal. You know what I'm saying? You'd like that. I'd like that, right? He's, he's, he, he's interesting. I mean, he's got some crazy teachings. He can attract the crowd. You know, small town, Galilee. It's like you're not going to see a movie at night, you know, but you got this Jesus guy. He's, he's entertaining, interesting. I think most people, here's, here's the thing. Matthew records very, very few people in his gospel, very few people who just out and out rejected Jesus out of hand, who, who, who viciously opposed him, who said, no, I don't want anything to do with you. I want, in fact, I want to stop you. I want to reject you wholesale. There are a few of those folks. But by and large, by and large, people are okay with Jesus. They're just not going to repent. They're okay with what Jesus says. They like the things he does. Just don't ask me to do anything about it, Jesus. This is, I think, what Jesus is getting at. You've heard my message. You've experienced the power of the coming kingdom of heaven. You've gotten a taste of what God is doing in this world. And you've, you've not repented. You've not turned away from your way of living to this new 
kingdom reality that I'm proclaiming. Does that make sense to you? So I'm looking at this and wondering, okay, who, who, who might be represented by the unrepentant cities in our day? And some, some of us might think, well, it's those people who have just flat out rejected Jesus. People who have said, I know everything about Jesus and I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Maybe. My guess is that it's, it's us oftentimes who are best represented by the unrepentant cities. Can I say that? It's oftentimes us. Jesus' response to these unrepentant cities is to warn them. It's to warn them. And I wonder if, if this is a word of warning for us too. Because it's not difficult. It's not difficult to say, I like Jesus. I believe things about Jesus. I have a Bible that talks about Jesus. I come to church to learn about Jesus. It's not hard. But have we repented in the best sense of the word? Have we turned away from old, broken, tired, religious ways of living to something else? Here's the question that I'd like you to take home with you. Does your life look any different today than it would have without Jesus? And I'm not really interested in just what goes on up in here. Not, do I believe different things because of Jesus? Does my life, do my actions, do my decisions, do the way I spend my money, does who my friends are, does the way I spend my time look different than it would have had I never encountered Jesus? Can you ask that question? Because it's a, it, it's, a, it's a word of warning. I don't think Jesus is judging in this passage, and that might be what it looks like at first, that Jesus is judging these cities. I don't think so. Because nothing happens to them, does it? Right? They still go on doing their thing, living their lives. I think what Jesus is doing here is saying, look, your response to me has, to, to, to be un, has been unrepentant. So here's my response to you. I'm going to warn you. Now, let me pause here a second. We've talked about judgment as a church a couple times. And this is what I will say, and I will argue this hard, that a God who does not judge is a God who is not good. You and I open the papers every day. We, look, we, we read online every day. We, we see stories every day of evil, of wickedness in this world, right? A God who does not judge evil and wickedness is a God who is not good. And if we're super honest with ourselves, we're aware that it's not simply that there's wickedness out there, but that there's wickedness in here. Fundamental, fundamental to Christian belief is the ability to say, it's not that I stand outside of the wickedness and the evil in the world, it's that it somehow has infected me too. And so here we have these two realities. On the one hand, we look at our world and its brokenness and its injustice, and we say, a God who does not judge that cannot be good. And then at the same time, we say, I know my own life. And I know that that which I think needs to be judged out there exists in here too, right? The good news of the gospel that we saw earlier is that Jesus is both judge and redeemer. That Jesus is both judge and redeemer. 
the only way that I can get my head around saying not only is judgment needed, but judgment is good news is the fact that Jesus is both judge and redeemer. So that Jesus is the one who God has given the authority to judge the earth, to make all things right, to punish wickedness and evil. And at the same time, at the same time, at the same time, to redeem, to rescue. Amen? That's how judgment is good news. It's the only way I can get my head around saying judgment is good news. So what is Jesus doing? Is he judging? I don't think so. I think he's warning. I think he's warning these unrepentant cities. Judgment will come. You have not repented. This is a warning for you. This is a warning for you. How does your life, how does my life look different today than it would have had we never encountered Jesus? It's the word of warning for us too, is it not? Let's look at this last one. The disciples, the disciples. Verse 25, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. The little children here are the disciples. Jesus' closest followers, those who've left everything to be with Jesus. Their response to Jesus, we've seen a response of questioning, of rejecting, and now we see a response of trusting. Now we see that the disciples have placed their trust in Jesus. We've talked about this a couple times throughout the series of, of Matthew. Trust is not perfectly understanding everything about God. Trust is not the exclusion of doubts or questions, is it? Trust is saying, I, I, I'll go with you. I'll open my heart up to you. That's trust. And Jesus, I think, looks over at these disciples, and I think he's, I try to picture it, I think he's almost taken aback. You know, he's been having this conversation about his cousin. He's probably feeling really bad for him because he's in prison. Now he's like pronouncing woe on these unrepentant cities. Heavy stuff, right? And he looks over, and who does he see? His disciples. Who are his disciples? Prostitutes, tax collectors, zealots, political revolutionaries, fishermen, laborers. That, that's who's like, they're like standing over here. You know what I mean? Like they're listening to Jesus go off on these cities. Like, ooh, you know, like what's he going to say to us? <laughs> I think Jesus looks over and he's, oh, and what does he do? He doesn't start talking to him. What does he do? He starts praying. You see that? He looks at this ragtag, down and out group of folks who had no prospects. And he says, oh, Father, I praise you for them. I give you thanks for them. You see this? These are folks who literally left everything to follow Jesus. And that might sound like a big deal to us, but most of these folks didn't have a lot to leave behind. They left it all, though, to be with Jesus. They'd been caught up in storms. They crossed lakes. They'd been encounters with ethnically and racially different people than they'd ever thought they'd be in conversation with. They'd seen all kind of crazy stuff already. They trusted Jesus. Did they totally understand Jesus? No. And we're going to see that later on. They don't totally get who Jesus is. They don't theologically get every nuance of who Jesus is. No. 
They trust Him. They're with Him. They followed Him to this point. This is the very first of Jesus' prayers that's recorded in Matthew. The first time that we hear Jesus talking to His Father out loud. He begins His prayer, Father, with a very intimate word, Daddy. When Matthew was preaching from his book, when he got to this part, people would have been maybe even offended of how Jesus talked about God. Language is too informal, too intimate. Now, Jesus is still very respectful, right? He said, Lord of heavens and the earth. He said, Father, Daddy. It's intimate language about God the Father. And then his prayer begins just with this spontaneous praise. Praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them. And he looks over to little children. Now, if you're a disciple, I don't know how you feel about being called little children, but you know that Jesus is thankful for you, praising God for you. That's this childlike trust of the disciples that causes, I think, this response of thankfulness by Jesus. He's been addressing questions and doubts from his cousin. He's warned his friends and his neighbors that the time has come to turn away from their old broken ways of living. And now he looks at this small group of followers, fishermen, tax collectors, sinners, the despised and the sick, and he just can't help himself. He bursts into praise for what God is doing. So once again, we see that reconciliation with God, entrance into God's kingdom now is not about what we know It's not about what we have done. It's not about what our reputation currently is. The kingdom of heaven, relationship with God, is accessed not through our strength, our wisdom, or our goodness. Amen? What does Jesus say? It's humility and trust of these disciples. It's the humility and trust of these disciples that opens us up to God's transforming righteousness. The unrepentant cities, the people living in these unrepentant cities, they were happy to have Jesus as their neighbor. They liked having him next door, I imagine. They benefited from his healings. They could tolerate some of his wacky teachings. But they were not about to reject their former way of life for this new kingdom of heaven that would cause them to turn into something totally new. The disciples, on the other hand, in contrast to these unrepentant cities, the disciples had left everything to be with Jesus. Everything to be with Jesus. They had, in the very best sense of the word, repented. In the very best sense of the word, they had repented. Turned away from everything else and towards Jesus for a brand new life within God's coming rule and reign. So what does Jesus do? He gives thanks. He gives thanks over people who are probably not used to being uh, thanked. He gives thanks for people whose, whose very presence often probably makes people uncomfortable who are used to being on the margins, ostracized, looked over. He looks at them and he says, Father, I give you thanks for them. Why is it that Jesus is so full of praise? Look at verse 27. All things, Jesus says, have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now this is huge right here. This is huge. Jesus gives thanks not simply in response to the disciples' childlike trust. No, no, no. He's rejoicing. He's praising 
because Jesus, because through Jesus, God has been revealed to these disciples. He's not just thanking God for their trust, their humility. He, he can't help himself but explode in praise because through Jesus, God has been revealed. You see that? This is a really, really big deal, church. First, Jesus is making a massive claim that the transcendent God of the universe can actually be known. In this moment, in this moment, Jesus is making the incredible claim that the God of the universe, who is so completely different, so completely other, so transcendent, can actually be known. You see this? Jesus is giving thanks. Why? Because God has been revealed through his Son. Number two, we see that the transcendent God of the universe not only can be known, wants to be known by us. Is that good news? The transcendent God of the universe who made the universe, who holds the universe in his hands, wants to be known by you. Not just can be known, desires to be known. So if you're a Christian, what does this mean? For those of us who, who would call ourselves Christians, this means that God right now rejoices over you. Do you believe that? No, you don't. You do not believe that. The God of the universe who holds the planets, the stars, the solar system in his hands right now is rejoicing over you. Is that good news to you? I know some of you don't still believe this. This is what Jesus is doing in this moment. He catches himself. He looks at this group of disciples who've been following. He knows all their issues. They are messed up people. And he can't help but give praise because he's been with his Father. He knows the Father. And he knows that the Father has been revealed to these little children. And he rejoices. Jesus says that it is God's what? His great pleasure to be known by you. Not only, does, not only can he be known by you, not only does he want to be known by you, he takes pleasure in being known by you. That's the gospel. Can you, can, you, can you get there? The God of the universe takes pleasure that you know him. Y'all don't believe this. I can tell you don't believe this. This is, the, this, is, this is the gospel. This is the great, great, great news. And Jesus says that because I have come. This transcendent, this completely other God can be known by you, and you can know this God and know that he rejoices over you. Rejoices over you. We can't forget that Jesus is praising God for people whose lives are really, 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 really messed up. Jesus isn't looking at people, okay, now that you got your act together, now that you got things cleaned up, I'm thankful for you. No. Who's in that crowd? It's the prostitutes, it's the sinners, it's the outcasts, it's the revolutionaries, it's the laborers, it's the political traitors that Jesus is giving thanks for. These are unemployed and homeless folks. They've been rejected by their families. And Jesus says, 
God of the universe rejoices over you. So what if, what, if, what if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian? I think it's still good news. I, I would argue, not in a mean way, I would argue that any spiritual interest, any, any, any interest, interest in the transcendent is evidence of God revealing God's self to you. I, I, I believe, I believe that, that, that any time we have a spiritual longing, any time we have a desire to make sense of the world, any time we have a sense that there is something happening that's slightly beyond us, this is God through Jesus revealing himself to us. Ah, the, 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 the really, to me, good news of the gospel is that relationship with God isn't something that we have to put together ourselves. Relationship isn't, with God isn't something that we have to, to, to put together ourselves, figure out ourselves, work real hard for. Relationship with God is what God has already done for us. And that in Jesus we could actually know this God. The passage, it ends with this, verse 28 and 30. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Worship team, go ahead and come back on up. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. You will find rest for your souls. Why did we start this church? Why, why did we start this church? Why are, we, why are we in this room? Why did some of you show up at 9.15 this morning to set up sound equipment? Why, why did we start this church? Why do we invite people to passionately love Christ every single Sunday? Why do you and I work and sacrifice for reconciling community? Why? Why do we prioritize the cause of Jesus in our lives? Why do you give generously of your time, of your talent, of your treasure every single week? Why do we miss services on Sunday, Nicole, to be with our kids every single week? Why? Why do we do that? Why do, why do we invite folks who are new to the neighborhood, new to the city, new to the church over for dinner, out to lunch? Why do we do that? Why do we give our best, our very best, for the students, the teachers, and the families of this school? Why? Because in Jesus, the Father is revealing himself to the world. Because in Jesus, the Father is revealing himself to the world. Because in Jesus, God is reconciling people to himself and to each other. That's why. Why did we start this church? Because in Jesus, God is removing the burdens of religion and duty and replacing it with grace, mercy, and freedom of life in the kingdom of heaven. That's why we started this church. Because in Jesus, God is taking broken people like me and putting us back together. That's why. Why did we start this church? Because in Jesus, God is dismantling hate 
In Jesus, God is dismantling racism. In Jesus, God is dismantling sexism. That's why we started this church. Amen. We started this church because in Jesus, God is infusing the hopeless and the helpless with new purpose and new mission. That's why. We started this church because in Jesus, God is inviting the lonely into authentic community, is binding up the brokenhearted and giving courage to the fearful. That's why we started this church. Because in Jesus, God is making it known that every person, every person everywhere has a holy dignity marked by the very image of God. That's why we started this church. And so, and so we encounter Jesus in these different ways. And some of us encounter Jesus and we question, we doubt, we have, we're skeptical. Jesus has compassion. Some of us, some of us have rejected Jesus. Maybe, maybe we've been living as if we've accepted him, but we know good and well that our lives wouldn't look any different today if we'd never, if we'd never encountered Jesus. And the word is warning. Repent. And some of us feel like that group of disciples kind of off to the side. We are full, fully aware of, of, of our messed upness. We're fully aware that we don't have it together, that we're never going to have it together. We're fully aware if, if were it not for Jesus, I can't imagine where I would be today. It's a response of trust. I don't always get it. I don't always understand. I don't always know what's coming tomorrow. But Jesus, I trust you. And the response, what's the response? What's the response? Utter praise and joy rejoicing over you. Right now, the Bible says that Jesus reigns and rules from the right hand of the Father. And can you, in your mind's eye, can you picture Jesus ruling and reigning and at this very moment rejoicing over you? Frankly, I don't really care what you did last week. I don't care how you messed up last night. I don't care how confusing your life is right now. I don't care if you're going to mess up later today. I don't care. Right now, Jesus rules and reigns and rejoices over you. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. I don't know what's coming tomorrow. Jesus rejoices over you. Some of you really don't know how you're paying the bills next month. Jesus is rejoicing over you right now. Some of you have no idea how this relationship that you're in the thick of is ever going to be resolved in a way that is redemptive. And Jesus is rejoicing over you, even now. Some of you have experienced depression for so long that it's just the, it's the normal for you now. He believed that even now, even now in the thick of it, Jesus is rejoicing over you. Why did we start this church? Because in Jesus, God is revealing his love for the world. And we want to be a part of that. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we... um, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for, and I'm convinced that I don't even totally understand this, God, but we thank you for being a God who sees all of who we are, 
A God who doesn't have anything hidden from you. No thought, no action. And yet still rejoices, still praises the Father for us. God, we thank you that you, and, and, and it's, almost, it's almost embarrassing to say this, we thank you that you take pleasure in us. Most of us are pretty aware there's not a lot in us, a lot of the time that's very pleasure-worthy. We thank you that you made us, that you know us. We thank you that in Jesus you have redeemed and restored our lives. And that you rejoice over us. So my prayer today is for those of us who are having a really hard time believing this. Who are having a really, really hard time believing this. Holy Spirit of the living God, would you speak truth to us now? Would you silence the voices that are saying you'll never be good enough, you'll never have it together enough to be worthy, to be acceptable. Holy Spirit, silence those voices, I pray. Allow instead the only singular voice that we need to hear, the voice of Jesus giving praise to the Father because God has been revealed to us and this God takes pleasure in knowing us and rejoicing over us. Pray for those of us who are doubting, who are questioning, who are skeptical, who are cynical. Those of us who've had way too many bad experiences with anything even smelling like religion. Ah, Lord Jesus, would would you show your compassion to us? Lord, for for my sisters and my brothers who are in this place of doubt, God, would, would they know your compassion in a powerful way now? Would you be sufficient for them in this time? And for those of us who need to ask this hard question about whether our lives would look any different had we never encountered you, would you give us the courage to ask that question, to follow it where it leads? For those of us who need the courage to turn away from, to turn away from sin, rebellion, wickedness, brokenness, religious ways of living, give us the courage, Lord Jesus, to turn from that and into the freedom and the grace of your coming kingdom. We thank you that you are more than enough for all of these requests, God. So we pray with confidence that you're at work, you have been at work, you will be at work in the lives of your people and your world. We pray these things in the powerful, beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing one last song. Let me say a couple things. First, uh, if if you need prayer uh, today after our service, come forward. We'd love to pray for you today. The second thing I want to say real briefly is that um, I closed our sermon today talking about why we as a church do what we do. Um, And that question includes you. 
when I say, why, why have we started this church? Um, that's you. Some of you are like, oh, I've only been here a month. Oh, sorry. You're in. More than two weeks at our church and you're in. It's like in the fine print. Um, we need you. We need you as we pursue God's mission in this neighborhood and beyond in this city. We need you. We need you to consider yourselves a part of God's mission in our church. And so we need you to find ways to to passionately be involved in what God is doing in this church and in this city. So so some of you who, who aren't sure where that is, stop by the welcome table on your way out, please. Say... I need, I need somewhere to belong. I need somewhere to serve. I need somewhere to demonstrate God's redemptive mission through our church in this city. Okay, can I ask that? Is that okay? Now you're all quiet again. Thanks for being with us this morning. Go out rejoicing. Go out praising that the very God of the universe knows you. And that in Jesus, you know the very God of the universe. Be awed this week. Be blown away this week that God takes great pleasure in knowing you. Amen? Amen. John, pray for us, please. Father, we thank you so much for not being intimidated or offended by where we may question you in our lives. Yes, Jesus. Where we may be skeptical of you. But instead, you show compassion and you reveal yourself even more to us in the things that you do for us and the things that you say in your spoken word and the times that you visit us once again in your presence. We thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness towards us. Father, as we go our separate ways, help us to keep this in mind that, Father, you rejoice over us. And you rejoice, Father, in in, in proving yourself to us. So we leave with that in mind. Yes, Lord. Yes. And Father, let our cry this week to be that, you know, our lives be only for you. Yeah. That our desires would be for you. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 Come forward if you want prayer. Stop by the welcome table. If you got a minute, help us clean up the stage and take down as well. Thanks. We'll see you next week.